0: One week from tomorrow, something's happening. <laughs> Christmas will celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe for a moment that the world is actually celebrating His birth. But I do believe that most people still understand that this day represents the birth and the occasion of the holidays, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether they believe in him or not, they acknowledge that it's for the Lord Jesus Christ. But even if they acknowledge that he is the, quote, reason for the season, they really don't know why. They could tell you, yes, it's the birth of Jesus, but if you said what's significant about that? They would be at a loss. To understand, I want to ask you, do you understand the significance of the birth of Jesus? Now, of the four gospel records of the life and ministry of Jesus, only Matthew and Luke give us the historical account of the circumstances surrounding his birth. However, when we turn to the gospel of John, and I'd like you to do that, turn to John chapter one. John doesn't mention a word of the historical account of his birth, rather he gives perhaps the clearest and most concise statement regarding the incarnation of the Lord. Now the whole passage is talking about this, but I want to focus in on verses four through eighteen well particularly fourteen through eighteen. And we'll focus primarily on verse 14. But here John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Peter Lewis said, when no Gentile philosopher or what no Gentile philosopher would have believed, what no Jewish theologian had conceived, God had done. The Word became flesh. The highest being became a lowly creature. The source of life became a dying man. Now, John begins here speaking of the most astonishing fact that we could ever understand, and we'll never understand it fully, but it's the most astonishing fact of the Incarnation. He says it very clearly and very simply. He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's speaking of the One who became incarnate, and that is the Word. It's one of the many names or designations for the Son of God. We find Him speaking of the Word in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is none other than the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Co-equal, co-existent with with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Of the same essence, and yet a distinct person. The Word became flesh. The nature, he assumed, is that He became flesh. John doesn't say that the Word became a man or, or took on a body, as some would think that he, he simply assumed a body. We see science fiction movies where an alien will assume the body of a person. That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Rather, as Leon Morris said, he chooses that form of the expression which puts what he wants to say most bluntly. He said the Word became flesh. That's what incarnation means. It means in the flesh the Incarnation brings together two astounding realities. That Jesus is God, and that Jesus is a man. He is both. Uh, The Incarnation is that God Himself became a man. He didn't just assume the body. He became a man. This shuts the mouths of all the heretics throughout the ages who have denied in one way or another that the Son of God actually became a man. They may stop short of this in many ways, but in every way, they're denying this reality that God became a man. That Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that he's speaking of this Word as being God is very clear in these opening verses. He says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so here, speaking very clearly that this Word was with God. He was distinct from God. God the Father, that is. And yet he says He was God. He was with God and He was God. Now that's a mystery when we try to understand this. We'll never grasp this. But the Bible teaches very clearly that God exists eternally in three distinct persons. There's one God and yet that one God Exist eternally in three persons. Now we read in John, uh, in third and second John, uh, that we're to beware of those who teach otherwise. That teach that he has not come in the flesh. And even back in that day, there were those Gnostics who who thought that God, who is so separate from man, could never become a man, and dwell among us. That God could not defile himself. In that way, and so they denied that he actually became a man, that he was something less than a man, or, or that he did just assume a body of sorts. But no, the Bible teaches that he actually came in the flesh. In First John chapter four, uh, John warns the, the same people there. He says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God." Because many false prophets have gone out in the world. And by this you'll know the Spirit of God, he says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And I appreciate how our brother brought this out. How that we don't separate from everyone who differs from us in every way. Uh, we would be just a few people sitting here. We might not even agree with one another. Might be sitting here all alone. Uh But we do uh, have fellowship with Christians who believe the essentials of the gospel, those <clears throat> those cardinal doctrines. <clears throat> but here's a cardinal doctrine that if they don't believe this, then you're not to have anything to do with them. And that's what he says. Don't even eat with such a one. Don't. Welcome them. Don't greet them. Now, I don't believe he's seeing that you're to be a snob to anyone. Because Jesus even taught that we're to do kind things, good things, even towards our enemies. Those who hate God and hate us. But we're not to treat them like they are Christians. Because, he says, they're not. They're not Christians. If they do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh... They're not of God. If they deny His deity or they deny His humanity, they're not of God. So have nothing to do with them. And there are those like the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons. Don't treat them like they're Christians because they're not. I'm not saying there's not someone who might be in one of those organizations that might be a true Christian. They don't really believe what the church teaches, their church teaches. Uh, but if they do believe what their church teaches, then they're not of God. They're not Christians. So don't treat them like they're Christians. That's how important this doctrine is. It's not something that you can just say, well, good men disagree. We're fine. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. No. He says very clearly. John Flavel, the Puritan, said this is a doctrine hard to understand and dangerous to mistake. This isn't something to trifle with. He's fully God and fully man. Not half man and half God, as some might teach. But He is fully God and fully man. This is a mystery. The Bible even says this. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, there were times in the Old Testament where God appeared on earth. We call these theophanies. He would appear as a man or as an angel. But here, when he became flesh, he actually became a man. Fully God and fully man. And then notice that John tells us here, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He lived here. He, he, uh, he, uh, grew weary, he grew tired, he ate, he was sorrowful, he lived right here, he was one of us. That's what he says, he dwelt among us. And then he says, and we beheld his glory. To behold something means uh, to see with your bodily eyes, but it means more than that, more than just to see. Because everyone who lived in that time, wherever Jesus was, they saw him, didn't they? the pharisees saw him uh, the other uh, religious leaders saw him uh, but it meant more than that it means to gaze upon with the idea of a calm and careful scrutiny and contemplation to examine something with care behold we beheld his glory he says in first john chapter 1 john says that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life, he says, was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We beheld him. We saw him. They were with him. The apostles were with him day and night, 24-7. They watched him. They examined him. They were evaluating him. Now, when John says we here, he's speaking more than just the apostles, I believe. But it is one of the unique qualifications to be an apostle and why there are no apostles today. They must have been an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. You remember in Acts chapter one, when they were going to replace Judas, who had betrayed the Lord and who had uh, sold Him uh, for 30 pieces of silver, He went out and hanged Himself. So they needed another one to fill His place. And they said, therefore, uh, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day in which He was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of His resurrection. So that was a qualification To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of His glory. And so John says, we beheld His glory. Now what exactly does it mean, we beheld His glory? Well, they saw Him just as everyone else saw Him. Uh, They would be able to say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not His sisters here with us? Uh, They saw a man, didn't they? A man just like any one of us. A real human being. As I said, he would grow weary and hungry. He would be sorrowful. Even remember in Gethsemane, he said, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. They saw that. But we ought not to think that this glory that they saw was some kind of glow. Uh Don Carson said we ought not to think of his glory as a kind of Luminescence that marked him out as no ordinary mortal. That you could spot him in a crowd because of this, this glow around him. And we ought not to think of it in this way. And we get this idea from so many of the, the artists in the past and the present who've depicted him this way. Or many of the songs that are sung, even especially around this Christmas time. And I love the song Silent Night, but the one part I, 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 don't care for is when it says radiant beams from His holy face. Because they look down at the manger and you can see the glow coming from the manger. I'm sorry, if you looked in the manger, you would see a little baby. A baby. A baby crying. A baby who needed to be fed. A baby who needed to be birthed. A baby who needed to be changed. They saw a baby, a child. But He does say here, that we saw or we beheld His glory. What is His glory? William Hendrickson said, the radiance of His grace and the majesty of His truth manifested itself in all His works and words. The attributes of deity shining through the veil of His human nature. We saw a man, but we saw more than a man. We saw that this man was indeed Very God of very God. And it was especially at the cross where His true glory was manifested in the deepest sense. Remember when Jesus was about to go to the cross the night before in John chapter 12, He told His disciples, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat... Falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ even on the cross. When He hung helpless on the cross, bleeding and dying. You remember even the soldier that stood at the foot of the cross. Watching Him die, He confessed that this truly is the Son of God. The thief... Hanging beside Him on the cross. Looked at Him, bleeding, dying with a crown of thorns in His head. And He says, remember Me when you enter into your kingdom. His glory which they beheld was, He says here, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory which they beheld was, the glory is the only begotten of the Father. No, we hear that word quite a bit when we read in the Scriptures. The only begotten. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Well, children, what begotten uh, means, it means a person had a child. Uh, she has three children or she had two children. They were begotten. Well, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He was eternally begotten. It wasn't a particular time in which Jesus Christ became the Son of God. He was always the Son of God. And He was the Son of God in a unique sense. The only one of its kind. The only begotten. In verses 12 and 13, if you look back there, John tells us, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. When we trust in Christ, when we believe in Him, we are adopted into God's family. We, be, we obtain the right to be called the children of God. Now, some people think that all men are God's children by nature. Because He created them, they are all His children. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says there's some who are of their father the devil. And the Bible teaches you're either A child of God or you're a child of the devil. The bad news is that by nature, we're all children of the devil. All children of wrath, the Bible says. But it's through grace and through the gift of God, we can become the children of God. And how do we become the children of God? By receiving the Son of God, believing upon Him, trusting in Him. We have the right to become the children of God. But you see, our sonship, those who receive Christ, who believe in His name, we're given the right to become the children of God. It's not our right by nature. As I said, by nature, we're children of wrath. The right is graciously conferred. We'll talk about grace in a moment, but grace means undeserved. Is that something we earned? It's not something that we can grasp for ourselves and we can't work for it. It's a gracious gift. We've been given the right to become the children of God. It's our right by grace, not by nature. But Christ has this right by nature. It belongs to Him. It wasn't conferred upon Him at creation or even at His incarnation or His baptism or His resurrection. Oh, but you say in this baptism, which comes a little bit later, uh, we see that the son, that when the son of God came up out of the water, a voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That doesn't mean that he became the son of God. No, God the father acknowledges him before all as my beloved son. It was his right by nature. It was His from all eternity. He is the eternal Son of God. And so in that sense, He is the only begotten of the Father. There's a uniqueness to this glory which they beheld. But also, He speaks of the fullness of His glory. And notice He says, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's clearly describing the fullness of Christ. Jesus Christ has in Himself all the fullness of the Godhead. Colossians 2, 9, In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. You see, when Jesus became a man, the Son of God became a man, He did not empty Himself of His deity. That's another heresy that's been taught in the church that when Jesus came to this earth, He emptied Himself of all of His deity and He became a man. He's no longer God. No, He never ceased being fully God while becoming fully man. He's full of grace and truth, He says. Full of grace. Again, that's the unmerited, undeserved favor. But who could not read the gospel accounts without seeing the fullness of His grace? Everything He did was gracious. Gracious words. Gracious acts of kindness and compassion. Gracious invitations. Come unto Me all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He who comes to Me I will in no wise cast out. He's ready to receive and welcome the vilest offender who believes. That's what the Bible shows. He was full of grace. Psalm 45, 2, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. He is full of grace. That doesn't mean that He's all grace or only grace. He's coming one day to be the judge of the earth. And He is a God who is indignant. A God who is full of justice and wrath. But here He speaks of Him as being full of grace. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? He is full of grace, you see. If you notice down in verse 16, He speaks there of "Of His fullness. We have all received and grace for grace. You see, He is the giver of grace and we are the recipients of grace. And He says, that we have all received grace for grace, or another translation could be grace upon grace. The commentators have struggled to grasp uh, what John intended here. William Hendrickson, the great commentator, uh, he said, one of the manifestations of unmerited favor of God is hardly gone when another one arrives. Have you ever feel that way? You, you've gone to Him confessing your sins and pleading for mercy. And you know and believe His Word that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, what grace! And we turn around maybe a few moments later or a few days later, and we're pleading the same thing. Have mercy upon me, God. According to the multitude of Your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. No sooner have we used grace, but we need it again. And it's there, an ever plenteous supply of grace. Uh, Another Matthew Henry said, one grace is heaped upon another. It just keeps on coming. Someone said the substitution of New Testament grace in the room instead of Old Testament grace. And that's a possibility. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But this much is clear. He's speaking here of the superabundance of grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Can't be measured. Its depths cannot be fathomed. His grace just keeps coming and coming and coming. This is the argument the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Romans. When he's speaking of the whole world, Jew and Gentile, they're all in sin and under the condemnation of God. But then he speaks of the justification through Jesus Christ, that through him we have peace with God. Through him we have our sins washed away. And he says this, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. It's not an obstacle to anyone's salvation. Maybe you're sitting here today and you, you know your sins. Maybe no one else does. They don't know the depth of the things you've done, the depravity. And you think, oh, he could never save anyone like me. But yes, He can. He's full of grace and truth. Grace for grace. We've all received it. The Apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's right, to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am chief. But he says, God rescued me. God saved me that I might be an example to others. You see, the logic is clear. If he'll save the worst of sinners, which he already had, then he'll save any sinner. You can't be too sinful for him to save you. And so he says, we have received grace upon grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But not only is he full of grace, but it says he's full of truth. For John Leon Morris said, truth is many-sided and many-splendored. We could look at the truth being he's the truth, that is, he is answerable to all of the Old Testament types, those lambs, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, all of those things were pointing to Christ, and he is the fulfillment of which those things pointed. He is the reality, He's the final and ultimate reality of all the types and shadows to which they pointed. But also he's truth in opposition to falsehood. He's reliable. He's faithful. He's abounding in goodness and in truth. You look around this world and that's something that's sadly lacking. Truth. You don't know who to believe anymore. Uh, Those institutions and people and, and professions that we trusted so much. We've come to find out they're men and can't be trusted. But the Lord Jesus Christ can be trusted. He's full of truth. He always spoke the truth and did not defer to men. He never tried to just win people's opinions. He didn't try to just win them over and, and shave off truth. He spoke the truth of God. Without embarrassment, without qualification, He spoke the truth. And that's why some loved Him, and that's also why some hated Him. Because He knew they, that He spoke of them. You remember on the Sermon on the Mount, when He when he opened his mouth, and that was the very beginning of his ministry, he said, you have heard that it was said of old. And he would see whatever was spoken by these by these teachers that had corrupted God's Word. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. I say to you. He came to tear off the barnacles that had clustered around the truth of God that had deformed it. And then he lays it out for them. In Mark chapter 6, verse 2, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? They were amazed, even from a child. Remember when he came into the temple, uh, when his parents found him in the temple on that trip to Jerusalem, when he's only 12 years old, they found him with the teachers. And they're all amazed. The teachers were amazed of all the things he knew at 12 years old. He was full of truth. You see, there is in his fullness, whether it is of grace or truth, everything that his people need. They need power. They need wisdom. They need holiness. They need comfort. Before anything else, we stand in need of his grace. This unmerited faith. We need to be justified through His grace to remove our guilt and our stain. To remove our guilt. He came to do that. He came to do a work. You see, being born in Bethlehem was only the first step. He was heading all that time He was heading to the cross. You remember even throughout His ministry He began to look towards Jerusalem. He fixed His gaze upon Jerusalem and He said, I must go there. I must be delivered up. He knew He had to go to the cross. And so He did. But He did this to remove our guilt. The Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because He took our guilt. He took our sin. He was the sin bearer and He was put upon the cross by men, yes, but ultimately by God Himself to pay for the sins of His people for all who would ever trust in Him for salvation. He died for their sins. He died and paid the full price for our sin so that we might be forgiven. And not only did He die for our justification, but He rose again. And the Bible says He's coming again and He's coming again to deliver us completely and forever from the presence of sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 speaks of his wretched condition as a Christian. He says, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I, I do. And finally, at the end of that chapter 7, he says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he looks to the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's sanctifying grace to cleanse us. But he's coming again to deliver us completely from our sins. And so he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ coming here to earth. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He's full of grace and truth. We're saying we that Him that Fountain of Never-Ceasing Grace, Thy saints' exhaustless theme, great object of immortal praise, is essentially supreme. So you see, this is what He came to do, was to save us from our sins. He didn't just come to sprinkle about good cheer. He came to deliver us from the greatest thing that's hanging over our heads. That is the condemnation of God. He that believeth in the Son has life. He that believeth not in the Son of God, Jesus said, has not life, but the wrath of God abides upon him still. Upon every man, every woman, every child. The wrath of God. Why the wrath of God? Because of your sin. The wages of sin is death. God is a holy God. He must punish sin. But God sent his son into the world to save us from his own wrath. He sent his son to deliver us from the just punishment of our sin. How? By sending his son to take that punishment on our behalf. John also speaks here of the superiority of his glory. His glory is superior to all other creatures. He speaks in verse 15 of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was ordained by God to be the forerunner, to prepare the way for the Lord. It says John says here, this is, he of, this is He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me, for He was before Me. Now if you know the chronology, John was born before Jesus. He's older than Jesus. And yet John said, He came before me. How did He come before me? Well, He came before Him all right. He was in the very beginning with God as we read. He came uh, to this earth. He was with God, but He came to this earth. He is before me. He, uh, he goes on to say later in this same chapter that I'm not worthy to unloose the thong of His sandal. He speaks of his pre existence. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And his enemies knew what that meant. They knew that this meant he was claiming to be God. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, that that was his overly zealous. Disciples, they they just concocted this whole thing about him. Uh, He became so large in their minds that he was bigger than life. No, he was bigger than life. He's the eternal Son of God. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. His glory was superior to that of Moses. In verse 17, It says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there is a a contrast here. Now, don't mistake this and think there was no grace in the Old Testament. Or there was no truth in the Old Testament. It was all law. No, there was grace and there was truth in the Old. And don't think there's no law in Christ. It says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Yes, grace and truth. But the law was there. And Again, you read the Sermon on the Mount and you see the law of God. He's expounding the law of God. He's showing the depths of the law of God. It's not just with the outward things like the Pharisees thought. No, it reaches into the heart. But what it is saying is there is a contrast that when Christ came, being full of grace and truth, He presented that to God for us. His ministry surpasses the ministry of Moses. Moses was a great man, a great leader. God used him. But Moses falls infinitely short of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law could only condemn, it couldn't save. The law which Moses had given to the Israelites, or really the law that God gave through Moses, was called the ministry of death and condemnation. But Christ came preaching grace, preaching forgiveness through His name and through His blood. His glory is superior to all who have gone before Him, for He is the supreme revelation of God. He says in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. No one has seen God except for the Son of God. He's in the bosom of the Father. Speaking of the closest, most intimate relationship with the Father. You think of the angels surrounding the throne of God. The very angels that are worshiping Him and hiding their faces from Him and worshiping holy, holy, holy. But the Lord Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. Again, Peter Lewis said His revelation is personal, underived, absolute. Jesus is not simply a word about God or even a word from God. He Himself is the Word of God. And John says, He has declared Him. It's been said that this word declares Him really means He has exegeted or explained Him. Remember what the disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus said, have you been with Me so long you don't know? He that has seen Me has seen the Father. Every time I say something like that, quoting the Scriptures themselves or quoting the very words of Christ, I'm just amazed how anybody could say He was only a good man. If He was only a good man, what good men say things like that? I don't know a good man that says, look at me if you want to see God. But Jesus could say that because He was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He could say that. And He's the only one who could ever say that. He has declared Him. Hebrews 1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways, spoken times past to the fathers, passed to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And Jesus Christ came into this world and has brought to mankind the greatest blessing imaginable. And that's the knowledge of God to live our lives with no understanding of God, of who He is or what He is like. No faith in Him, trusting and believing in Him to live that kind of life is without hope and without God in this world. And it's a terrible and miserable condition. But Jesus came so that we might know God. I give to them eternal life, He says. This is eternal life, that they might know You, the true and the living God. Jesus declares the nature and the attributes and the counsel of God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Christ. Look to Him. He is God, very God, a very God. And He came and He showed us exactly what God is like. We see the power of God, that even the winds and the waves obeyed His voice. The demons were subject to Him. No case too difficult. He revealed the zeal of God for His name and honor even when He went into the temple and overthrew the the tables and drove the money changers out. It says this, quoting from the Old Testament, the zeal of the Lord had consumed Him. But more than that, He reveals the heart of God in heaven towards sinners on earth. God's heart towards sinners is He wants them to be saved. He wants them to believe in Him, to follow Him. Just as Jesus said, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He was speaking for God. When He stood in the great crowd and said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. He was speaking for God. When he says to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, he's speaking for God. You can trust that you can believe that you can follow that you can have hope and assurance. That you have been made right with God and that if you die or Christ comes again, you're ready, you're ready for him, not because of your good works but because of what Christ has done for you and on your behalf. This is eternal life, that they might know Thee, the only true and living God. Do you know Him? That's what Christmas really should be all about. That God has come and visited us through His Son, who became a man who became flesh and dwelt among us. God has sent His Son into this world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is nothing to trifle with. If God would send His own Son into the world, this is a vital issue. This isn't something, as I said, just to sprinkle good cheer around the world, like some kind of cosmic Santa Claus. No, there's a problem, and that problem is our sin. And he sent his son to deal with that so that you and I might know God, that we might enjoy him forever and glorify him together. Do you know him? Do you? Do you really believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't know God unless you believe in Him. Jesus said this very clearly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. You want to go to heaven? You want, to, you want your sins forgiven? Well, there's only one way. And that's what Jesus came to do and to say. I am the way. Believe on Me. Follow me. Trust in me. Quit trusting yourself. Quit trusting religion or your church or some religious leader or some good thing you've done. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Have you believed in him? Have you trusted him? That's really all that matters this Christmas season. You're thinking about what presents you're going to get or or what you're going to do with that present. That's fine. Set that aside. Think, what about my soul? What about my soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does it profit you, children, if you got every present you ever wanted and yet you don't know God and your soul is still lost and you're still under the judgment of God? You see, this is the most important thing. Not what you're getting for Christmas, but what God did when He sent His Son into the world. He provided a Savior so that you might believe and follow Him and be saved. And the Lord open all of our eyes to see this reality and to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me as we pray?